YouTube, it's like a Scottish or something version. Put a real Irish, thank you. I knew it was one of them. I apologize for getting that one wrong. But it's really, uh, when I'm having a really good time and there's really no one else around, I'll draw that accent out real bad. i got to cut myself off from doing it whenever Sutherland's playing it because he's playing it the right way. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, 357. 357. Nearer my God to thee. Yeah. 
Take our Bibles, if you will. Turn to number, number. Turn to, turn to number twelve of the book of Romans. Romans chapter twelve. And with the Keith on the brain, there as I came up, and uh, I know we don't say a lot about our musicians, but I appreciate both of them and the work they do and the labor of love. And uh, thankful for their faithfulness. And um, Romans chapter number 12, and um, we have about uh, 17 points this afternoon, in all honesty. <laughs> I think it might be just shy of that. I'm trying to count them down here, but, uh, or it might be a few more than that. So uh, it might be a two-week lesson, so we'll see how that goes. Romans chapter 12, and a very familiar passage to begin with. We'll start in verse number 1. Paul says, I beseech ye therefore, you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this afternoon, that you would encourage our hearts. Lord, help us to learn some things that will uh, help us to be more of a testimony for you, uh, to be more of what we ought to be for you, that we would draw closer to you through the teaching of your word this afternoon. And Father, I pray that you'd help our hearts to uh, take great peace and great comfort in what we'll learn and uh, that we will apply ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
preached on this passage many, many times before, these two verses specifically, and how often that Paul, uh, especially in this particular passage, but throughout all of his writings, he encourages the churches uh, to yield themselves, to give themselves to good behavior, to walk in the Spirit. He's always dealing with those types of themes, it seems like, throughout many of the books that he's written and all the letters that he wrote to churches. And we get here to the 12th chapter of Romans, and he uses a very strong uh, phrase here. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And then he implores us, and, and you know, again, the idea of beseeching is more than just asking a, a casual favor, but is an emotional uh, pleading, if you will, and uh, imploring. Um, and he says, he uses the, uh, the leverage, if you will, or the foundation for his plea, uh, to be based on the fact that God has shown us mercy. He says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. And uh, because of the fact that God has shown us mercy, then Paul says there's some things that ought to happen. And he says, first of all, in verse 1, that we uh, present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, I'm thankful that God made us um, with a free will. <laughs> Aren't you? I am so thankful that we have a free will. And so God does not demand our bodies. But Paul says this, that when we get saved, because of the mercy that God has shown to us, we ought to be willing to take our bodies and present them to the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of the will, something that we do willingly, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. And then notice he says this, holy, and, and we don't focus a lot on that word in this particular verse, and to be honest with you, in the day that we live, holiness does not get preached on an awful lot. Uh, the idea that we ought to live a clean life, a holy life, is not something we preach on a whole lot anymore because we tend to want to follow the things of the world. And uh, we're going to look at some of that in just a little bit. And then he says, acceptable unto God. That means if there's a phrase here where Paul says that we ought to live our life in a holy, in a holy way and in a way that is acceptable to God then the, the, the implication here is that there's a way that we could live our lives that would be unacceptable to God. That there's a way that he would look at and say, okay, that's what I desire for a Christian to live like. And then there's a way that we, he would look at and say, that's not the way that I would desire a Christian to live their life. And, and so understanding that Paul is, is trying to speak here about uh, our, with our will, not, not being forced, not because of duty, not because it's commanded, but he says it ought to be something we do just because of the mercy that God has shown to us. We ought willingly present our bodies in this way, that it's a living sacrifice, that it strives to have holiness shown in it, and that it is laid down in such a way that it is acceptable in the sight of God. Then he goes on in verse number 2, and he gives the contrast here. Uh, the contrast is between being conformed to this world or being transformed by the renewing of our minds. He uses two different words here. And the idea that the world uses pressure, they use peer pressure, they use enticements, they use motivations, they try to um, influence your decision or your will to follow after them. Uh, there, are, there are billions, and probably I would say even trillions of dollars spent by companies to learn how to appeal to the flesh nature of people. They do it in advertisements all the time. You look at advertisements that are out here, and they'll use things that have nothing to do with the product to appeal to somebody and make them want that product. The reason is they've learned to either pressure or to make it seem like that's the cool way, and boy, I don't want to be uncool, you know, so there's a pressure there. 
uh, they use enticements. They try to make things look glamorous, uh, more glamorous than they are. Uh, you look at some of the alcohol commercials that are out there, and, I mean, they make them look pretty glamorous, don't they? Uh, they do a lot of that kind of things to entice you to buy things. Uh, if you ever go into uh, the stores, uh, they know that parents are going to have kids with them. And you know what they put on the levels that are down there about eye level with kids? All the candy, right? Okay? They study that. They know that. They know human behavior. Can I tell you this? The world and Satan is doing everything it can to manipulate the flesh nature of man. But there is something that happens in a Christian that the Bible speaks about, and that is a transformation of the heart and the mind. And when the heart and the mind are transformed, not by pressure, but they are transformed by the new uh, nature being born inside of us, the quickening of our spirit inside when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, there's a new nature that is born. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so this is a transformation. This isn't something that is done on the outward, but it's something that happens on the inside. Now, the difference is that the outside confirmation of the world will always affect the inside. Whereas the transformation that happens on the inside by the Holy Spirit will usually present itself outwardly. The only times that it will not will be when we start uh, fighting against that spirit and saying, I don't want that spirit to be in me. Now, understanding where Paul is coming from here, he's talking here about uh, uh, living a life that is a living sacrifice, a life that is holy, a life that is acceptable unto God, and he uses this phrase, which is your what? Reasonable service. He talks about the confirmation of the world, being conformed to the world, and he talks about the transformation of the new man or the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us. And he spends the rest of the chapter dealing with what our reasonable service, what this transformation ought to produce in a Christian's life. Now, before we get into this, I want to mention that we don't take a list like this and go to it like a smorgasbord and say, okay, I like that one, but I don't like that one, and we don't get to pick and choose. Nor do we come to it and say, okay, I see that that's something I should do, so I'm going to try to outwardly do that. What I'm trying to get across to us is this, that when the transformation of our hearts and our minds are right, when we yield our will to the Lord Jesus Christ and present a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, these will be things that will just be the normal. They will be reasonable in the Christian's life. So we're not dealing with, we get down, when we get down with this list, you, you may look at that and say, boy, Brother Greg, that's a, that's a super Christian, you know. Uh, get him a cape and put a big C on his chest, you know, super Christian. No, this is normal. This is the reasonable service of a Christian. So Paul, what does Paul say about it? Well, let's take a look real quick. Start in verse number 2. He says, and be not conformed to this world. What is, what is being a reasonable Christian? Well, a reasonable Christian is one that doesn't look at the world and say, I want to be like it. He's not enticed by it. He's not pressured. He's not conformed to this world. Um, I am thankful <laughs> that when I grew up, there were certain things that I wanted to do because all my friends had done. There were places I wanted to go, things I wanted to do. There were sometimes posters or things I wanted to buy and put up in my room because those were the cool things and my friends had them. And mom and dad said, no. <laughs> I'm thankful I was raised that way because there would have been an enticement to the things of the world. 
there would have been a confirmation taking place in my life. The, the reasonable life of a Christian ought be one that is not enticed or enamored by the world and has that desire to be like the world, to try to dress like them and act like them. I saw um, a video here, it's been a couple months ago, of uh, a quote-unquote church service, and I have to be careful how I say this. And the, pa- the pastor, the guy, I guess the guy that was in charge of it, came on the platform, and can I tell you this, uh, he did everything he could to look like and act like a worldly person. You, if you had turned the, the mute button down, you would have thought you were at a concert of some sort, some secular concert. Can I tell you this, that the reasonable service of a Christian is to separate themselves from the world, not to be conformed to it, not to be uh, having that appetite towards it. Now, the old flesh nature is there, and I understand the temptations are there, but that ought not be the reasonable response of a Christian. There ought also to be, uh, in verse number 3, the Bible says, For I say, through the grace given unto you to every man among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought. Can I tell you that another characteristic of a reasonable Christian, a Christian that has been transformed by the renewing of their mind, is a Christian that is a humble Christian. That's one of the battles we fight. We face this very often. And isn't it amazing to us that sometimes we think, boy, that person is very, very humble. They are really a good Christian. No, that's just a reasonable Christian. That's what Paul refers to here as somebody that's just doing the normal, is that we be a person that practices humility. We don't look at our things. We don't try to build our things up. We look every man to the things of others. We try to encourage other people. We try to edify other people. And that's not even extraordinary. That's not even going above and beyond. That's not even out of the way for a Christian. That's just our reasonable service. That's just the idea of one that has been transformed in the inside, and these things begin to come on as they begin to produce themselves outwardly. We've got to, again, be careful that we don't just try to do these things outwardly, but that our heart be truly transformed to where it is a natural result. You know how many times the Bible uh, throughout uh, Scripture deals with the idea of the Christian being a tree or a, vine, a branch of the vine, the idea of us bearing fruit, we oftentimes use that to mean winning souls. And there certainly is an application of that. But can I tell you this, that most of the time when the Bible speaks of a Christian bearing fruit, he's speaking about the fruit that the Spirit produces inside of our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, the Bible says, there is no law. Those are things that ought be produced in the inside that happen to come out on the outside. Again, we don't take this as a list that we try to put on like a jacket or a cloak and say, well, I'm going to have gentleness today. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I'm I'm going to be loving today. I'm going to be gracious today. We don't do that. We are transformed on the inside, and those things happen to display themselves as part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Part of the fruit, part of the outward expression of a reasonable Christian that has been transformed in the, by the renewing of their minds is that they will express a spirit of humility. Look with me in verse number 9. The Bible says this, But lo, lo, let love be without dissimulation. Boy, that's a big word, isn't it? Uh, we don't use that one a whole lot. But um, have you ever noticed somebody that will smile and, and act real kind to you, to your face, and they'll talk about how much they love you and you're their best friend. And then a week later, you hear somebody tell you that they were slandering you behind your back. 
That's love with dissimulation. That's, that's a, hypocr a hypocrisy in, 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 their, in their love, being hypocritical with their love. Telling you one thing, you know, <laughs> down south, we used to say this, you can say anything you want to about somebody as long as you, you follow it with bless their heart, you know. Uh, I can talk about Brother Keith and say, well, Brother Keith, you know, he's got, uh, got an ugly car out there, bless his heart, you know. As long as I end it with bless their heart, it's okay. That would be love that is hypocritical. We need to, as the normal part of a Christian life, we need to show genuine love one to another. We need to care one for another. Look what it says here in verse number 9 also. It says that we are to abhor that which is evil. Can I tell you this? This is To abhor that which is evil is not an extraordinary thing for a Christian. That ought to be the norm. To, to look at things that are wicked and ungodly, to look at the things that defy the moral law of God, and for us to detest them is not something extraordinary. That's just to be expected. And yet we look at some Christian that will take a stand against things that are defying the moral law of God, and we say that's an exceptional Christian, or that's a radical Christian, or that's a Christian that is fanatical. No, no, that's a normal Christian. That's just our reasonable service. Notice what else he says, verse number 9. We're to cleave to that which is good. We're to cleave to that which is good. You know, I grew up in a, a time frame where in our youth, to pro, youth program, I grew up in a Christian school, in our youth program, we had some guys that made, made some decisions for the Lord, and they tried to live them. And when we went to school, in a Christian school, we would try to live those things. And, you know, we would get ridiculed for that. We'd get called goody two-shoes or, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Can I tell you this? There's a, and even among people that named the name of Christ in that Christian school that said, yes, I'm a Christian, they would make fun sometimes of somebody who was cleaving to that which is good. They would call them too good. Can, can I tell you this? There ought to be a desire in every Christian's heart towards the things that are good, that are right, that are holy, that are just. There ought to be that tendency, and that's not extraordinary. That's the reasonable service of a Christian's life. Look what else he says here, verse number 10. He says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. That ought to be, that, that when people come around you, they ought to feel so loved and welcomed I, I tell you, it's been amazing to watch as, as God has done some things here in our church. And I love it. I love it when somebody comes in the doors of this church and says, Boy, I just felt at home here. Can I tell you, that's just kindly affection. That's just loving one another, caring for one another. That ought to be the norm. That ought to be the regular thing of the Christian life. Look with me in verse number 11. The Bible says, Not slothful in business. The Bible teaches us that whatever our hand finds to do, do it with all of our might. We need to be uh, honest in, in business. We need to be uh, fervent in business. Notice he says this, fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. Where is the fervency of the Christian life? Where is the Christians that are bubbling over with the things that are just exciting them about the Christian life? It, it's, it, it's never, it never ceases to amaze me. Sometimes you bump into some Christians, and I know we all have our bad days. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's not a time where you've had a bad day and things. But if your general uh, demeanor is when somebody comes up to you, well, how's everything going? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> there ought to be a joy in the Christian life. There ought to be a fervency in spirit. Somebody put it this way years ago, and I love the description. He said it ought to be an effervescent overflowing of God in our lives. 
And I use that word effervescent. Y'all remember the old Alka-Seltzer commercials? They called that effervescence where it just bubble up and bubble over. Can I tell you this? And I'm not saying, and again, don't try to go and do this outwardly. This needs to be something that so happens in our hearts through the transformation that God has done in us that it just cannot help but come out on the outside. There ought to be, and we look into verse number 11, he talks about being fervent in our spirit. That there is a fervency there. There's a, boy, let's, let's go. Let's, let's, this is great, the things of the Lord. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Can I tell you this? We sometimes look at serving the Lord, and we all tend to do it from time to time. We almost look at it as a drudgery. Oh, when I was a kid, mom and dad, sometimes they'd tell me, this is my list of chores. And I'd go, oh, you know, my chores, i got to do it. Can I tell you this? Serving God is not our chore spiritually. It is our privilege spiritually. There ought to be a joy in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. There ought to be an effervescent overflowing of excitement that God, the God of heaven, has chosen us to do His service. And that is not even exceptional in the Christian life. That's just the norm. That's what is to be expected when a life has been transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is the norm. That's, that is the, the body being given as a living sacrifice. That is a, a Christian that's desiring to live a holy life. That is a Christian who says, I just simply want to live a life that is acceptable to God. Because that is reasonable. That is what I am supposed to do. So we don't look at it as obligation. We don't look at it as duty. We look at that as a great privilege. Something that is to be enjoyed. Then he goes on to say this in verse number 12, and I like this. He says, rejoicing in hope. Again, you don't, there's some Christians, you don't ever ask them how they're doing because you're afraid they'll tell you. But do you ever have somebody, when you ask them how they're doing, they talk about getting ready to go to heaven, and boy, I can't wait to see Jesus, and boy, things are going good. And when we all get to heaven kind of thing, and when the roll is called up yonder, I'm, I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? I am. And, and the closer I get to it, the more excited I get about it. I remember as a kid thinking, Lord, don't come back yet. There's some things I want to do. I'll tell you this, that, that list went out the window a long time ago. <laughs> I'm ready for him to come. And, uh, you know, we ought to rejoice in that. You know how encouraging it is one to another when we start talking about the blessed hope that we have? The fact that one of these days we're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, either by life or by death, one way or the other, we're going to get there, and it's going to be a wonderful thing. Rejoicing in that. When was the last time we, we came to church? You know, I... Uh, I I uh, I remember Brother Randy one year uh, at Easter time, uh, he was teaching about the early church. And you know what the, the greeting of the early church was? When they would see one another, one of them would say, He is risen. And the other one would reply, He is risen indeed. And that was just their normal greeting. Rejoicing in hope. Boy, what a thought. What a thought. Then he says this, patient in tribulation. That's a tough one, isn't it? That's the one of the ones you say, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> I can't wait. Patient in tribulation. That's a tough one. It's hard to pray for that one because God will certainly work patience in us. But you know, that's, that's just the norm. That's part of a transformed mind. That's the average. That's just the mundane. That's not even exceptional or extraordinary. 
We are patient in tribulation. Notice he says this continuing instant in prayer. Now, does that mean that we're not ever talking to anybody and say, no, I can't talk right now, I've got to pray? That's not, we're, not, we're not talking about being overly pious. Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, went on an outing one day with his friends. And I've shared this before with our church. He went on an outing, which was very rare for him. Uh, if you study much about Charles Spurgeon's life, he was a workaholic. Uh, the fellow was a genius mentally. Uh, it was said he could carry on eight different trains of thought at one time and continue to keep them all in order and multitask. Phenomenal, phenomenal fellow. They finally talked him into taking a vacation and going to the park with him one day for a picnic. And the friends, after the day was over, said this. They said, we never knew when he was speaking to us and when he was speaking to God. He would flow so seamlessly between the two. Can I tell you, that's continuing instant in prayer. That's being able to, at any moment, come into God's presence and pray with Him and talk with Him just like you would anyone else. That's just the norm. It's being able, in the middle of wherever you're at, and without fear of embarrassment. Have you ever met people, they go to a restaurant, and they'll drop their napkin on the floor so they can pray on the way down and back up? They've done, I've seen people do it. Why were we embarrassed to pray out in public? I had a dear friend of mine, Brother Wayne Korfman, that said this, we're never ashamed to speak about the people we love. Why would we be embarrassed of Christ? My son's 13 years old. Now, I'm not saying you have to hold hands in the middle of praying, but something our family's done ever since we were, my kids were born and everything else. If he and I are out by ourselves together, I'll hold his hand and we'll pray across the table. He's getting to that age where he's kind of like, Dad, do we really have to, you know. You know what? I want people to realize we're praying. You know what? We're praying. Oh, that we would learn to be instant in prayer. Verse number 13, he says, distributing to the necessity of the saints. We need to be able to be generous when we see a need in others. Generous when we give a need in others, see a need in others. Paul commended the church at Philippi, the, the first church that he established when he went to Macedonia. One of the few churches that Paul never uh, scolds for anything that they're doing wrong. He always commends them. And in fact, the only, the only church in Scripture that Paul writes to where he does not offer some form of correction to them. And he talks about the fact that out of their necessity, they gave to his need. Now, I'm not saying that you make your family go uh, without so that you can meet the need of someone else. You certainly have to take care of your families. And I, I, I'm not talking about you going out and getting into debt for things. But how often have we had the means and the resources to be a help and someone has had a need? Have we been able to help them? I've seen so many times God's people step forward and do things to help one another and encourage one another. And oh, the, the, the unbelievable encouragement that is. And yet the Bible teaches us that that's just, that's just the norm, that we be considerate of the needs of others. Notice he also says this, given to hospitality. I don't think we have to preach on that one a whole lot at our church. we got almost too much of it downstairs <laughs> I am thankful for hospitality, aren't you? I really am. And we really don't need to preach a lot on that one to this group because I think this group has done phenomenal in that area. 
And uh, we certainly have enjoyed that in our church. Notice he says this in verse number 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. The, act, the, the idea that we not retaliate. That we not retaliate when people uh, misuse us or mishandle us, speak evil against us. How quick and how easy it is. Any of you got the old the old temper that you fight with all the time? I, I do. I, I got an issue with that. And uh, one of those things I have to really... When I was younger, I actually had a deacon come to me one time and talk to me and was just gracious to me and spoke to me about that. And at very young, I was in my mid-20s at the time, and what a blessing it was to have a godly man like that sit with me and talk with me about the testimony that that was portraying. And I thought, you know, over the years... There's been many, many times that the blood pressure's come up, the face has turned red, and God has held the tongue, and I'm thankful for it. Can I tell you this? There needs to be, in our hearts, there needs to be a tendency not to retaliate to those that speak evil of us. It's the human nature, isn't it, to fight back? But all oh, the grace that is shown... And then he says this in verse number 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. We need to be empathetic with others. We need to be empathetic with others. Verse number 16, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Again, the idea of empathizing, I should have had that in verse number 15. Verse number 17, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And again, the idea not of retaliating, but also the idea here of being honest in the sight of fellow Christians, in the sight of church members, in the sight of pastor. Nope, in the sight of what? All men. You get away from the brothers and sisters in Christ, you get away from your family, you get away from your pastor, and the opportunity comes where if you are honest, it's going to cost you. Are we still honest in the sight of all men? That ought to be the norm. That's not even extraordinary. Notice in verse number 18, this is another one that's very, very difficult to practice. If it be possible, and even Paul puts the, the criteria, if it be possible, because this one's a hard one. As much as lieth in you, Live peaceably with all men. That's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, we love everybody. We just don't like some people, right? I told somebody the other day, there's some people you'll show up at their funeral, but you don't want to go on vacation with them. And uh, those are the kind of people sometimes that get under our skin, that we argue and bicker with and fight with. I know growing up, my sister and I were, I did everything I could to antagonize her. I loved her so much, I just wanted to irritate her all the time. And she didn't understand my love. I didn't understand that. But uh, we used to fight and bicker. It didn't mean I didn't love her. But we certainly did not live peaceably. And there were times my mom would talk about getting on her last nerve. I don't know how many times we got on it, but that nerve must have been wore out quite a bit. But, you know, we, we tend to do this. Very easily, we get into a disc, discord among someone else or with someone else over something. We begin to we begin to argue. We begin to fight. We begin to have issues. 
The Bible says as much as, within, as lieth in us that we are to live peaceably with all men. Is there a time to take a stand? Absolutely, there are times to take a stand. But as much as we're able to, we're to live peaceably with all men. Verse 19 and 20, again, he's dealing with the fact that we're not to avenge ourselves. In verse number 21, he says, but we're to overcome evil <laughs> with good. Boy, that's something that goes so contrary to the old flesh nature, doesn't it? Somebody does us wrong and we do something good to overcome it. That's a tough one. And then the last one, verse number, or chapter 13, verse number 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Where as much as within us is, we are to live peaceably in the society that God has given us, that we are subject to the higher powers in civil matters only. When it comes to scriptural or biblical matters, we must obey God rather than man. And the Bible is very clear on that. Folks, this is, that, that's a bunch of them. I don't know how many. I didn't number them all. Anybody got a number there? Eighteen. So I was one off. Okay. Eighteen. These are eighteen things. Now, there's more in Scripture. There's plenty more. But these are eighteen things that Paul looks at, and he starts off by talking to us about giving our body a living sacrifice, making it a living sacrifice, being holy and living in a way that is acceptable to, to God. And then he goes through this list. And can I tell you this, folks? It is our reasonable service. He said, Brother Greg, how in the world do I get all of these things to happen in my life? I, I'm struggling with just one or two of them even. How in the world am I going to get 18 of them? By transforming the mind. By transforming the mind. You say, how do I do that? We read God's Word, we pray, we walk with God. We feed the Spirit more than we feed the flesh. Can I tell you this? If we're watching more television than we are studying and thinking and reading about God, we're going to be feeding the flesh more than we're feeding the Spirit. If we're reading things that are of this world more than we're reading Scripture or things about God, then we are feeding the flesh more than we're feeding the Spirit. And then no wonder that we look at our lives and say, I'm struggling having these things evident in my life. Are we feeding the Spirit more than we're feeding the flesh? And I hope that will be a help to you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And Father, help us to daily make improvement, that daily we would love you more, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would live our life in a way that is more pleasing to you today than it was yesterday. Lord, may we constantly be making progress. May we be working and laboring and striving towards this being transformed in the renewing of our minds. I pray that you'll dismiss us with your blessings. And Lord, help us to have the messages upon our hearts that we've been through throughout this day. That they will encourage us, that they will uh, motivate us where needed, where they'll convict us. And Lord, may we live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.